I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined once again by my colleague, John Michael Seibler. Welcome back. Hey, Elizabeth. Thank you. So the biggest headline of the week is Justice Ginsburg's absence from oral arguments. Chief Justice Roberts indicated that she will participate in the cases that she missed by reading the briefs and the argument transcripts. Now, this is not unprecedented for members of the court, but it certainly is for the notorious RBG. It's the first time she's missed an argument since joining the court 25 years ago. Justice Ginsburg underwent surgery in late December to remove cancerous nodules from one of her lungs, and she's clearly still recuperating. So I think it's a bit premature to read too much into this, and we'll see if she's back next week. Yeah, definitely too early to tell. Neither she—she didn't miss a day of argument— when she or her husband were previously treated for cancer. Isn't that right? That's right. And after her husband passed away, she was back at the court the next day. It's incredible. So she's very committed to to her job. And clearly she can't do it 100% right now. She's still recuperating. I mean, she had surgery, I think, two and a half weeks ago. Right. Um, so uh, we, we certainly hope that, uh, you know, she's recovering well. In other SCOTUS news, how much longer will the federal courts be able to operate if the government shutdown is not resolved? Lydia Wheeler writes in The Hill that the Supreme Court and lower courts have been able to draw upon court fees and other funds that aren't tied to congressional appropriations. Uh, The court actually remained open during previous government shutdowns, including the longest shutdown, which was in December 1995 to January 1996, and it lasted 21 days. Although by the time you are listening to this, dear listener, uh, the current shutdown may be the longest. (laughs) Maybe. So criminal cases are likely to continue, but we're already seeing civil dockets slow down in the lower federal courts. You know, this is interesting because the court never shuts down. Rain Rain or snow, they're always open. So do you think they'll just keep finding funds to draw on? Yeah. You know, the the justices are very committed. They're staunch uh, in their commitment to keep arguments scheduled and, you know, keep the trains running on time. Uh, so I guess we'll we'll see. But hopefully the shutdown will be over, perhaps by the time people are even listening to this episode. Well, let's move on to the new grants and recent opinions. In the last week, the court did grant certain several cases, starting with Emulex Corp., whether the Securities Exchange Commission Act supports an inferred private right of action based on the negligent misstatement or omission made in connection with a tender offer. In Taggart against Lorenzen, the case asks whether it involves civil contempt in the bankruptcy code. In the United States against Davis, there's a vagueness challenge to the subsection-specific definition of crime of violence that applies only in the context of a federal criminal prosecution for possessing, using, or carrying a firearm in connection with a crime of violence. There, the code provision is 18 U.S.C. 924C3B. And hopefully, Justices Gorsuch and Thomas are already envisioning themselves at home plate, ready to hit two <laughs> more home run opinions on vagueness. Last year, in sessions against DeMaia, the court held that the Immigration and Nationality Act's definition of crime of violence for purposes of removal proceedings was unconstitutionally vague. And there, Gorsuch wrote a concurring opinion in defense of the vagueness doctrine. And Thomas both joined Chief Justice Roberts' dissenting opinion and authored his own dissent where he critiqued the vagueness doctrine. So perhaps Davis will shine more light on this really important issue. The court also granted cert in Iancu versus Brunetti. This is a First Amendment challenge to the Patent and Trade Office's denial of a trademark under the immoral or scandalous section of the Lanham Act. The mark in question is for a clothing line called F-U-C-T. 
I'll let <laughs> listeners sound that out at home. <laughs> this is similar to a case brought uh, brought to the court two terms ago challenging the PTO's ability to deny offensive marks. And that case was brought by the Asian-American band The Slants, and they won. So we'll see what happens here. Uh, And finally, the court noted probable jurisdiction in cases from North Carolina and Maryland dealing with partisan gerrymandering. Yes, that's right. It's back. It, It was at the court last term, and it's back once again. So will the court continue Justice Kennedy's quest to find a judicially manageable standard for reviewing these claims? We'll know soon enough. The briefing schedule has been expedited, so expect oral arguments early in the court's March session. But moving on to the opinions this week, Justice Kavanaugh delivered his maiden opinion. John Michael, was it a thrilling read? It was exactly the kind of not thrilling read you'd expect and hope to see in a first opinion. Uh, This was in Shine, Inc. against Archer and White Sales, Inc. It was argued October 29th, 2018 and decided January 8th, 2019. It's unanimous, it's only 10 pages, and it's about arbitration. It's everything you could hope for in your first opinion as a Supreme Court justice. Everything you want. There, the court overturned a Fifth Circuit ruling that a wholly groundless exception to arbitrability is consistent with the Federal Arbitration Act. The court issued another unanimous opinion this week, Culbertson v. Berryhill, written by Justice Thomas. This case deals with attorney's fees for claims for past due disability benefits from the Social Security Administration. The court held that the Social Security Act does not impose a 25 percent cap on attorney's fees in a past due benefits claim pursued both before the agency and in court. You know, wasn't this one of the cases where Kennedy was at the court for oral argument, <laughs> eagerly listening? <laughs> I think I think it might have been. Maybe he'll be back for the opinion announcement. Yeah, perhaps he was there and he saw he saw that uh, Ginsburg's chair was empty and thought, "Hey, <laughs> let me let me back up there." <laughs> Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. <laughs> He's always ready. <laughs> anyway, I recently spoke with Sean Murata. Sean Murata is a senior associate at Hogan Levels. Sean, welcome to SCOTUS 101. Thanks so much for having me. So you're pretty active on Twitter. You share tidbits on hashtag appellate Twitter and the hashtag turn blog uh, practice Tuesday. So tell me, what value do you think that these provide to the legal community? Appellate Twitter and practice Tuesday are bunch of different things. I think the most important part is that it is a way for people who otherwise more or less sit in their offices and write briefs all day uh, to connect with one another. And it's been incredibly helpful for that, uh, both in terms of making new friends and people who understand what I do for a living and that I can talk to when things are tough, and also in terms of an almost network of Uh, local advisors and counsel. So to give an example, I had my first case in the New Mexico Court of Appeals, and I thought to myself, you know what? I know somebody who works in the New Mexico appellate courts on appellate Twitter. I reached out to him and said, hey, can you send me a sample brief for this kind of filing I'm doing? And he did, and he provided some really great uh, tips on how to deal with the local courts. And that's the sort of thing that I would not have had available to me uh, before Twitter. And I think with terms of practice, Tuesday, which we use to sort of give advice and tips to new attorneys or to share advice amongst ourselves, it often is the case that things that I knew and that were handed down to me are, you know, routine to me, but plenty of people have never heard before. So, you know, every year we do something on interviewing on campus and interviewing at callbacks at law firms. And of course, I've given this advice many times before, but it might be the first time a lot of people are hearing it. 
and to be able to have a platform where we can share that um, to people who maybe don't have access to people who have worked at big law firms or are going through the process for the first time, that's really valuable. It really um, gives people access to experts in the area that you might not think to call up or email, but you could tweet at. So Appellate Twitter is not just for networking and professional development. I loved when your son was born and you tweeted a picture saying, Murata and Murata is proud to announce the arrival of its first associate, senior partner, and baby boy are doing well. <laughs> so I love the, the community that, that Appellate Twitter has created. It really has. And in response to that, I got a onesie that someone made that said, hashtag appellate Twitter loves me. And so I did a picture of that as well. And um, to be able to share those kind of milestones is fun with the community. And the response I got was terrific from judges, from reporters, from attorneys I know. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'll have to tell him when he gets older that his, his birth was a well-remarked-on event on the Internet. <laughs> That's wonderful. Uh, so speaking of Twitter, you've used it to help mentor young lawyers. Uh, so Law.com ran a story last year about how you made an open offer on Twitter to meet up with summer associates for coffee, and you ended up talking with 15 different summer associates. So tell me about some of the advice that you shared with these law students about charting the course of their careers. The most important thing I think I shared was that you need to embrace the serendipity of law practice because... People go into law school thinking they want to do a certain thing. Either they want to work at a particular big law firm or they want to do a particular form of uh, public interest work. But what you find is that oftentimes your career doesn't end up the way you charted it. And that can be for a variety of reasons. I talked to some people who maybe didn't have as great grades as they thought they would when they entered law school. And it was hard for them to figure out what they were going to do um, as a result, because they had been in the top 10% their entire life, and they had to think about, well, how do I change my career goals, or how do I reach my career goals from a different place than I thought I'd be in? So I did some of that. The other part is just telling people that, you know, just because you have a list of the top five firms you want to work at um, doesn't mean that some other firm may not be the best place for you. The story I told all the time was that... Uh, I walked out of Hogan Lovells almost a decade ago thinking, well, I didn't get that job um, <laughs> because I had what I thought was a disastrous callback interview with a hiring co-chair. But I said to myself, you know what, there's this other law firm I'd really want to work at a whole lot more. And sure enough, I did not get an offer at the firm I wanted to work at a whole lot more. And I'm celebrating my seven years at Hogan Lovells. So it just goes to show that just because you think something is right for you uh, doesn't mean it necessarily will be. And that's what I really try to convey, that sure, it's great to have a plan and it's great to go out and uh, want to do certain things, but also be open to new experiences and new opportunities and let it take you where it takes you because you'll find that your career can't be mapped out. In what is often seen as a dog-eat-dog -dog industry, it's really refreshing to see young lawyers helping other young lawyers. Uh, so shifting gears a bit, you clerked for a judge on the New Jersey Appellate Division. Tell me about your judge. My judge was Jane Grawl, who uh, came up through the ranks. She was a family court judge before she was on the Appellate Division. And the most amazing thing I learned about her is that Judges often have a reputation for being a little bit full of themselves and a little <laughs> bit full of their titles, but she had to be the most modest judge that I'd ever come across. Um, she would not let us call her judge in public, and I 
think she probably would not want of us to call her judge in chambers, except that we refused to do that. <clears throat> and to the point where when she was calling to check on my references for my clerkship, she would call partners or professors I worked with, and she'd say, hi, this is Jane Grawl. I'm calling about Sean Murata. And one of the people told me that uh, it took her the whole voicemail message to realize that this was a judge calling to check on a reference, and she should <laughs> probably call her back. Um, but what I really learned from her was that being a judge is power enough. <laughs> you don't have to then be a jerk, um, particularly when you have so much power over your law clerks and over judicial employees and over attorneys. You don't have to be bullying. You don't have to walk around and say, I'm a judge. You must respect me because you get that respect by virtue of being a judge. And the way she proved herself was not by being uh full of herself, but by writing great opinions, by giving every litigant a fair shake, by working harder than anyone else in chambers. Um, you know, we'd be leaving for the day while she goes out and reads memos and works on drafts opinions and just was really the kind of judge that I think every litigant hopes they get. Because at the end of the day, you say, whether you're won or lost, she read my argument, she got my argument, she thought really hard about it. And, you know, explained why she ruled as she did. And that was a really tremendous thing. And the other thing I learned about being on the New Jersey Appellate Division is you really had a better respect for state courts. Uh, New Jersey, like many states, has a broader constitution than, uh, than the federal constitution. And so you learn respect for state constitutions and state constitutional rights and taking those seriously. And that was a fun aspect of a state court clerkship you often don't get in federal court. As you mentioned, now you're at Hogan Lovells, where you work with Neil Katyal. And for any of our listeners who don't know, Neil was the acting solicitor general in the Obama administration following Elena Kagan's promotion to the Supreme Court. So tell me about working with Neil. The amazing thing about Neil is how open to diverse views he is. You know, Neil and I don't have the same politics. He's very much a Democrat, and I'm very much not. But at the same time, he affirmatively goes out and hires people on the other side of the spectrum because he says, the only way I'm going to understand the other side of an argument or the way I'm going to understand the perspective of conservative or Republican judges and justices is to hire people who've worked with them, who think like them, who understand their point of view. And I think like all great advocates, he understands that he's at his best uh, when he is understanding um, all sides of an issue, even if he ultimately doesn't agree at the end. So he has handled many, I think, high-profile, left-leaning cases, but he's also come to those of, them, those of us who don't agree with him and say, you don't have to work on these cases. You know, your worth here isn't about that. I value you as a member of my team, even if you don't want to work on these cases. And that was very reassuring because I'm not sure every attorney is like that. The other part is to say that um, Neil knows more about the business of law than almost anyone I've met. There's so much that goes into running an appellate practice that is not just writing really good briefs and giving really good appellate arguments, but in terms of pitching to clients and how to work with and uh, manage clients and their needs and their expectations, as well as developing and mentoring associates, Neil's really top-notch at that. And there's so much of the practice that is that, and I've learned so much of it from him. I'd love to hear about some of your other legal mentors. Sure. So I want to give a shout out to the other co-head of our appellate practice, Kate Stetson. Uh, she's a name that's not as well known uh, outside legal circles as Neil, but she is 
such an incredible attorney. If you've been to the D.C. Circuit and saw major uh, administrative arguments, and in fact, she had an incredible argument on behalf of Adnan Syed, who was the subject of season one of the serial podcast (laughs) at the Maryland Court of Appeals. And she has this amazing ability to present an argument that she's just talking you through it and giving you the evidence like she's having a conversation with you. And it's really an incredible lesson in advocacy. Uh, But not only that, she's also one of the greatest developers of young talent that I've ever seen. Um, You know, she is rightly looked up to by all of our summer associate classes and all that she works with and has also taught me so much about uh, you know, being a parent was being a working attorney, how you make that work and, um, you know, how you take care of your your career while at the same time making sure that you don't neglect your family at home. She's really been a role model. And if I can do it as half as good as Kate has, um, I've done pretty well. So let's turn to your appellate practice. You've argued a number of cases in the courts of appeals, including a four week span earlier mm-hmm. this year when you argued four cases uh, in those four weeks. Were they all in different circuits? They were. So I was in the uh, I was in the federal circuit. I was in the D.C. circuit. Um, I was supposed to be in the Texas Supreme Court, except that I like to think I did such a wonderful job that the other side dismissed the case before oral argument. So I I really got all around. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, my appellate practice has been really diverse. And I think most appellate attorneys are something of a generalist. But I've also had the incredible fortune to work for a large automotive manufacturer uh, going around the country and arguing personal jurisdiction issues, which is where can a company be sued and can plaintiffs and their attorneys forum shop cases to certain states. I've also been lucky to work on a lot of pipeline cases. So with the natural gas boom in the United States, there are a lot of environmental groups that would prefer natural gas either not come out of the ground or not come out of the ground anywhere near their backyard. And so we've done a lot of work um, against state regulators and defending the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, making sure that those important uh, cleaner burning projects can go forward. So it's, it's fun doing a little bit of everything, but it's also fun to get to know an area a little bit more deeply and to really be an expert in it, too. So what have been the most memorable arguments that you've had? So I think the best, the most wonderful argument I've had is one that I did pro bono in front of the New Jersey Supreme Court, and I was able to help establish the right to appointed counsel if you're a parent who's threatened with the loss of your child in a private adoption action. So in New Jersey, as in most states, if the state of New Jersey tries to take away your, your child for unfitness, you get appointed counsel no problem. But what had never been established in New Jersey is what if a private couple in a private adoption action tries to take away your child, claiming that you're unfit. And the New Jersey Supreme Court unanimously held that you have a right to appointed counsel there as well. And it's actually an example of one of those broader uh, state rights than the federal rights. Under the federal constitution, you might not have a right to appointed counsel in those circumstances. Um, And to actually say that I was part of creating a constitutional right was really quite exciting. So have you developed any rituals or traditions before your arguments? Um, For example, do you have a pump-up jam or do you eat specific uh, superfoods or have a, a lucky tie or anything like that? 
so, so there are two. There are two rituals. One of which I've borrowed from Kate Stetson, which is before oral argument, she usually has a diet soda and a and a hamburger, which I've tried to pick up. <laughs> uh, you know, typically you just have room service while you're pouring over your papers. But the morning of oral argument, I really try to like blast the catchiest, hookiest music I can think of. It is often uh, counting crows accidentally in love so I can like <laughs> dance around a hotel room um, like a big white guy and scream it at the top of my lungs and just try to get in a, in a good mood. Uh, <laughs> recently, I have done a little bit more of That's Not My Name by the Ting Tings. So, you know, it's a playlist and it should develop, but it is actually good to try to like get yourself energized for an appellate oral argument because you're so much in your head. Uh, that you need to chase away the anxiety and just step up and try to have an oral uh, conversation with the judges. And I don't know, getting out some of that nervous energy by by dancing around a hotel room seems to do it. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so shifting gears quite a bit, pretty soon the 2020 presidential campaigns will be in full swing. So I wanted to get your thoughts. Do you think any of the uh, Democratic hopefuls will put together SCOTUS shortlists like then-candidate Trump did? You know, I don't know because I'm not sure if the Democratic candidates or Democrats in general have figured out that courts matter the way that Republican candidates and Republicans have. Um, there's a broad movement, I think, on the Democratic side to try to pump up their base about courts and the importance of courts. But it's not clear if that's come through yet. Uh, and I think maybe we saw that in the midterm elections as well. Mm -hmm. So whether we'll see a list, I don't know. It'd be wonderful to see what is on some of those lists. But I, I'm not sure we're going to see it yet. Do you have if if one emerged, do you have any predictions for who might be on such a list? I, I don't have any names, but I would certainly <laughs> say look at the state courts. I would be I would be surprised if uh, the next Sup Supreme Court justice on a, under a Democratic administration doesn't come from a state court. Mm -hmm. So you have, I think, you know, very smart justices, for instance, on the California Supreme Court mm -hmm. that, is, that are being used as something of a farm team on the Democratic side. And I think we might see more about the importance of state courts and state court justices as a um, as the proving ground for the next round of Democratic justices. Definitely. OK, well, one final question, something we ask all <laughs> of our guests here at SCOTUS 101 if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? I would love to talk to Justice Thomas just about all the things he does outside of the court, because every interview you read about Justice Thomas talks about his you know, incredible booming laugh and his warmth to everyone at the court and the court family and all of the things he does, like hopping in an RV and going to see college football around the nation. <laughs> and just, you know, I talk law all day, but to be able to talk to a Supreme Court justice that I mostly see as a person who sits on the bench and doesn't ask any questions, I would just love to hear what he does outside the court and, and what energizes him in that way, because it's always great to remember that law is really important, but being a person is really important, too. And to hear that from somebody who sits on the highest court in the land would be really exciting. Well, that would be a great conversation to have. Uh, well, Sean, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, SCOTUS Absence Edition. <laughs> I'm going to try to stump John Michael. Are you ready? Ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> okay, first question. And we're going way back in history. Which justice allegedly skipped oral arguments to deal with creditors and ended up in debtor's prison? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> ended up in prison. <laughs> uh, 
I can give you some hints I, the, if you'd like. Okay, let's get a hint. I don't know if it'll help. He was a founding father and one of the first Supreme Court justices. And he ended up in prison? I don't know. It's uh, Justice James Wilson. Apparently, he was continually borrowing money to invest in land speculation, and eventually his creditors caught up with him. And uh, to date, he is the only justice to land himself in prison. (laughs) What a a great title. Great legacy. (laughs) (laughs) Next question. Justice Robert Jackson took a year-long leave of absence from the court in 1945 and 1946. What was Justice Jackson up to during his gap year? In 45 to 46? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I would guess something. International? If it's not, I don't know, something to do with Congress. Was he dealing with a congressional panel? He was not. He served as the chief prosecutor of the Nuremberg trials following World War II. I was trying to give you a hint. (laughs) Okay, next question. Which infamous justice might as well have skipped oral arguments in the 1974 term because his fellow justices made an agreement not to let him cast the deciding vote in any case? He was the was he, longest serving justice. Was he senile well, at the time? Not exactly. Not exactly. Who, who was this? <laughs> justice William O. William, Douglas. William o. Douglas. So he suffered a stroke while vacationing oh. in the Bahamas with his wife, Kathleen, who was his fourth wife. And 46 years his, his junior. And oh. he stayed on for the court nearly a year after this debilitating stroke. And so his fellow justices came up with a system so that he would not cast the decisive vote in any, in any case. Right. <laughs> so that's one way to handle it. That's one way to do that, yeah. Okay, fourth and final question. Which chief justice missed 44 arguments in a term and still went on to write four Majority opinions in in those cases. Huh. This is more recent. Forty four arguments. Oh, it's more recent. Okay, I, w- I would have guessed John Jay until you said four cases in a in one term. Um, who? You don't want to take a guess. It's recent, but not too recent. Rehnquist. Yes. <laughs> Did I give enough hints? <laughs> yeah, you fed this, me a lot there. <laughs> this was in the 2004 term when he underwent treatment for thyroid cancer, mm-hmm. and uh, much like. Justice Ginsburg, he participated uh, in the arguments by, after the fact by reading the briefs and the transcripts. Well, you didn't do very well. Tough round. But these were, uh, I hope they were educational for, for you, John Michael, and for our listeners. I feel very enlightened. I hope the listeners do. <laughs> well, thanks for joining me. Well, thank you. And thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. And please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101. You can also email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.